Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk Podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and thank you for spending some of your day with us. Today, I am super happy to be joined by my friend, Kirk Lombard. And some of you may know Kirk Lombard because he's been on a lot of TV shows like Andrew Zimmern's Bizarre Foods and I believe Tony Bourdain and a whole bunch of other shows. He's very, very well known as kind of the king of the seashore. And he has a fantastic book called The Sea Forager and it is a hilarious and informative book written about gathering and fishing and foraging along the intertidal zone. So basically beachcombing kind of stuff. And I am really, really happy to be able to bring to you today a conversation with Kirk. And we will be talking all about gathering things on the seashore, fishing from shore, and really doing a lot of the kind of cool, grubby, neat stuff and gathering interesting and odd things to eat from the seaside. Without further ado, here we go. Hey, Kirk, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. It is fantastic to talk with you again. It's been a minute. It's been like, God, I don't know. It's damn near a decade since we first met, and it's been quite a while since we've dug tasty bivalves together. Yeah, it sure is good to be here, Hank. So for the people who don't know, Kirk, you describe yourself in a sonnet. What are the actual parameters of a sonnet again? <laughs> well, we can yeah. make them up as we go along because Shakespeare's uh, dead. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Does it have to be an iambic pentameter? Go for it. <laughs> oh, shit. No, well, no, like, go for it. Like, I could probably do better in haiku, but in All any right. case, uh, uh, no, I'll just, um, okay. Um, well, I run Sea Forger Seafood. I'm just going, I'm going free verse here. Okay. There you go. So, yeah, I run Sea Forager Seafood Company, which is based in San Francisco. And we've been doing that for nine years. I run it with my wife and a, a team of really cool people who are right now processing the fish while I'm talking to you. And uh, we're trying to follow really strict sustainability guidelines on that. And uh, we can talk about that if you want. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also am an, an avid fisher and forager of the shoreline. I officially sold my boat, so I'm back in my waders, man. So uh, I do a lot of fishing and foraging along the coast for bivalves and different species. I'm a poke pole aficionado. And I wrote a book called The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. Which is a great book, by the way. Thank you. And um, in that, I get to pontificate in my own way about the different creatures that I'm obsessed with on the California coast and in the intertidal zone, specifically. I write, I play music. I have a new band. I have a new metal band, dude. You got to hear it. Really? (laughs) Yeah. You sing sea shanties too, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, um, the official band of sea forager seafood is the fish wives. <laughs> and, uh, my wife plays the accordion and I'm the guy doing them. You know, I do, I, I do sort of a Broadway approach to, uh, to sea shanties. Cause that's where I come from. I, I come from a long line of Broadway performers in New York. Tin Pan Alley is in my blood. I know you'd said that. And it's just, I know exactly one sea shanty and it's by Arlo Guthrie and it's the ballad of Ruben Clamzo. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't know it, but I will put links to that particular. It's very rare to find a recording of that. Uh, there's a live cool. version lurking in the dark corner of YouTube somewhere that I can probably dredge up for the show notes. Cool, cool. Maybe we can add that to our repertoire. We need to expand our repertoire. We've been singing the same, you know, 15 songs for like 10 years. <laughs> but then I have this other band where <clears throat> might be of some interest. The guitar that I made for this band is a a two-string slide guitar that I made out of the spear of a, or I should say the sword of a swordfish. Wow. And and it's an electric uh, slide guitar. It's the only swordfish tusk on earth with a tone knob. 
<laughs> tell everybody. I caught my first swordfish in the Gulf of Mexico a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, you know, man, I don't even want to hear about that, dude. It's just going to make me jealous. I'll, well, I mean, don't, was, don't tell me about your fucking trophy fish. Dude. It was 35 pounds and we threw it back. So there you go. <laughs> 35 pounds. I, when was the last time I caught a 35 pound fish? But then again, I'm not really in the mix for that anymore. I got rid of my boat, so I'm not trolling around for halibut. And I'm, you know, I'm just uh, I'm poke pulling. Maybe someday I'll get a 35 pound eel. God, could you imagine? No, <laughs> only in my nightmares. That's like, it would be like the biggest wolf eel of all time. I don't know. I think wolf eels get bigger than that, man. They might. They might. Have you ever caught one of those? Uh, I have not caught the Pacific one. I've, there's an Atlantic fish called a wolf fish, which yeah. is effectively the same fish. Yeah. Same face. Yes. Which is the face out of your nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like if you guys can imagine a monkey faced eel, imagine that like a, a Stephen King version of a, of a monkey faced eel. And that's a wolf fish. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I think they have those jaws because they eat crabs, right? I mean, it's like a crab, you know, those, um, those crab crackers that you can get. Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it's got like a, a handle and you can cut the crab in half. That's kind of what their jaws are like. Basically. But, yeah. yeah. Smashes them. So how did you get started with it? Did you get started in the Northeast coast the same way I did? Uh, yeah, I grew up in New York. Whereabouts in New York? Greenwich village. Oh, you were like in Manhattan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, man. I lived in a building called West Beth, which was subsidized housing for artists along the Hudson River. And my parents moved in there in 1970. This will date me to some degree. <laughs> um, and then uh, we were right across from the Hudson River. And I, well, yeah, I mean, how far do you want me to back up here? Well, I mean, it's it, what's interesting is because I grew up in New Jersey and I uh -huh. spent a lot of time on Long Island. So I grew up seaside foraging and fishing in New Jersey, New York, and then my mom is from New England, so she I kind of cut my eye teeth on Block Island in the 70s uh -huh. in that intertidal zone. And so it's interesting that we both have Northeast origins and have ended up here in the, in the Northern California area. Well, it's interesting to me because um, I never went clamming when I lived in New York. I was Manhattan kid, you know. My only access to a beach, I had to take the train. And... Um, I just, uh, you know, it would be like Jones Beach or Reese Park. Those were the beaches I went to. I fished ah, and fish. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, nature. <laughs> I've got some damn good stripers and uh, bluefish off of uh, Jones Beach. Yeah, I've, I have too. I mean, but only little ones. I never caught anything substantial. You probably didn't go in I November. Caught, no, probably not. I mean, this is all really digging deep into the vaults of my suspect memory at this point because... You know, I've been in California for over 30 years, but as a kid, uh, we lived across from the Hudson River and I used to go, I had this guy named Marcus, who was sort of a neighborhood character. And we used to go fish for eels underneath the piers. This was some barbaric fishing, man. This was not nice. <laughs> you know, we were like little miscreants. But then um, I used to use small tackle and catch snappers. What they call snappers, you know, in the Hudson River was uh, baby bluefish. Exactly. And, we, you know, you couldn't eat any of these. I remember at that time, like if you fell into the Hudson River in those years, they would rush you to the hospital to <laughs> yep. get like a hepatitis <laughs> shot. Yeah, they absolutely it happened to Marcus. You fell in, everybody's like, oh my God. And they rushed him to the hospital and gave him a hepatitis shot. You know? And now you can eat the fish out of the Hudson River. Is it true? Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. There's Fine. still advisories, but it's not like you're going to die. It's like you probably shouldn't base your diet upon. That's yeah, like, that's like once per six months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like uh kind of like um uh the pike minnows in the Sacramento Delta. Yeah, pike minnow, right? That's what we call it now. I don't know. Eels every now and then a baby striper and bluefish. That was basically all we got. 
And I hear the eel population is tanked on the East Coast. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real shame because I used to fish eels on the Rappahannock River in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And in October, they would all flush down the river in like a week. Like you could pick them, you know, here and there for the whole year. But if you were there for that, you know, basically they all go in down to the, to the sea at that point. You could load up a cooler full of them. And then I used to smoke them, you know, smoke 20 at a time and then freeze them and eat them all year. Because smoked eel is one of the best things there is. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had um, smoked lamprey? Uh, I've seen it. I've never had the opportunity to actually eat it because it's mostly a native deal. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend who was friends with some guys. I think they were Yurok. And she sent me a jar. And um, and I was so I, I was so into that, man, because I'd long thought about it. I've always wanted to go and do that with the three prong, you know, the hook. Yeah. They kind of whack them off of uh, like in waterfalls and rapids and stuff. They get them right at the mouth of the Klamath and they, um, they have the special lamprey thing it's like this native implement and they break it through the water and then when they hook them they have to keep them spinning so they don't fall off the hook so you see these guys walking along with this weird sort of elbowed stick that they twirl there's some videos online you can see people fishing lamprey Crazy. it was a little disappointing hey you know i really wanted it to be as good as the american eel but it was, it was yeah it was a tad muddy oh bummer yeah so the um, atlantic ones are much bigger the atlantic lampreys yeah yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I've seen Atlantic lampreys as long as your arm. No, I've seen those in the American River, man. Oh, really? Oh, I've seen some big ones there. Oh. I'll, I'll link to lamprey if anybody out there doesn't know what a lamprey is. If you think the wolfish that we just talked about was the thing of your nightmares, this is far worse. This is like an H.P. Lovecraft creature. Yeah, it is. In fact, um, we have a song. My metal band has a, um, a song about lampreys. <laughs> Pro or con. In which we liken lampreys to bad landlords. maybe kind of had to be there but um the reason that i started getting into fishing as a kid was not just because i was across the street from the hudson river which was you know obviously not a a prime mountain stream in the sierras but it was because my grandfather was a passionate hunter and fisherman and he used to watch this uh it was called like the wide world of sports or something sit in his big chair and he'd watch this, you know, to be like guys hunting in Africa and fly fishing in the mountains and all this. I'd sit there and I'd watch it with him. And then he would tell me stories about fishing in Santa Cruz as a kid. And um, he grew up in Santa Cruz in the early 20th century. And he used to tell me these stories about going into, can you believe this? He'd go into the San Lorenzo Creek, which like, it's a laughable body of water at this point. And he would catch 50 steelhead a day. Good Lord. Every day. So if you want to know, what happened to the steelhead population of uh, California? You know, look no further. So uh, <laughs> my ancestors just, he, he would often say that he would catch 50 in the morning. And then on his way home from school, he'd catch another 50. Good Lord. <laughs> and I, I was like, were you killing all of these? He goes, oh, I only the big ones. Perfect. <laughs> and his, his father ran a butcher shop. So I think they just put him out on the street. And I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. It speaks to what the abundance was you know, which is kind of exhilarating and tragic. I know it's just a, it's a whole concept of recency bias and in fisheries where, you know, when we were kids, cause we're roughly the same age, you know, it's like, Oh, it was, it was really good. And blah, 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 blah. And then you're quoting your grandfather. It sucked when we were kids. And then, and then yeah. sort of like, we think it sucks now, but like a 15 year old is like, Oh, it's really good now. And like, it's a sad sort of negative cycle. Yeah. I think it's followed humanity for, you know, millions of years, maybe, you know, that we tend to, I don't know, I don't know, man, it's, 
I don't, I don't want to get too deep here, but I was just reading about like megafauna. Sometimes I just geek out and I, I read about megafauna mm-hmm. and uh, charismatic or, no, or, or otherwise. Yeah. And how, uh, I mean, even those you see the arrival of human populations in like, you know, a couple thousand years later, there's, you know, no more uh, megatheriums. Yeah. Like the big old sloths, because you, you, yeah. I guarantee you a whole bunch of dudes are like, Hmm, I bet that's tasty. <laughs> And they don't move real fast. They sure are big, though. Hey, let's get let's get that other group from over the hill. Let's let's gang up and just whack this big old sloth. <laughs> yeah, right. Or you know, like you know, bison tongues are really good to eat, but you know, it's such so much work just butchering them. Maybe we just drive them off a cliff. You know, buffalo take, jump. <laughs> take the tongues. You know, I don't know if that's real, but I'm I'm conjecturing. Well, the but the pushing them off the cliff—that's for damn sure. Uh, yeah, I think if I remember correctly, the whole tongue thing was an Anglo, like why people did it. And there was stated or otherwise, the theory of, in the late 1800s on killing as many bison as you could and then take the tongue or not was actually to starve out the native groups. Yeah, to, it's, to, it's pretty nefarious shit. That's beyond nefarious. Fucking totally evil. Hey, everybody, I wanted you to know that this podcast, Hunt, Gather, Talk, the season three, is a companion to my latest cookbook, which is Hook, Line, and Supper. Hook, Line, and Supper is probably the only fish and seafood cookbook you're ever going to need. It is a comprehensively written, lushly illustrated book that covers both freshwater and salt, and it is kind of the crowning achievement of what I've done in terms of all of my cookbooks over the years, because I have been fishing for decades and decades and decades, and I have fished all over the country, and I have eaten basically anything that lives in the water. And you are going to find that expertise in Hook, Line, and Supper. I wanted to give you guys, as listeners of my podcast, a special offer. If you go to my website, which is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, you can get to it at huntgathercook.com, and you go to the Buy the Book section, and you buy a copy of not just Hook, Line, and Supper, but any of the books on that website, you will get 20% off your checkout by using the coupon code HUNTGATHERTALK. So once again, if you are interested in buying the cookbook that underlies this podcast, go to my website, which is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, that is HUNTGATHERCOOK.com, and go to the Buy the Book section and use the coupon code HUNTGATHERTALK, and that will give you 20% off your order. One more thing, if you buy three books or more, I will upgrade your shipping to UPS from Media Mail, which will get it to you much, much faster. Again, the coupon code is HuntGatherTalk on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Uh, it's HuntGatherCook.com. And thank you for listening. What got you started on the kind of sea forager intertidal zone? Was it stalking the blue-eyed scallop? Was it, you know, what was the thing that like, God, damn, this is amazing. I need to do more of this. Yeah. So I grew up in Manhattan. So fishing for me was a concretized waterway that was toxic, you know? And then my parents got a little cabin in upstate New York that was part of like a hippie colony. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't mean to be pejorative with that, but it was, you know, sort of like artists from the city had purchased this little compound that had been a Hasidic Jewish sleepaway camp. And then the cabins, they weren't winterized. They were like these little tiny tent cabins almost. They purchased that and there was a little creek that ran through there. And that's where I spent my summers hunting and gathering on the creek. And um, 
that was a hugely transformative thing. Then in my 20s, I moved to California. And I realized that, I mean, you must have experienced this having moved here too. It just became so freaking easy to get to the coast. I mean, I was in the coast. I mean, we're here. It's, you know, it would take 10 minutes for me to get to a beach where there were no other people. This was a epiphany for me. I remember the first time I got to uh, Muir Beach, I was there on an overcast day and it was me. It was like one car, <laughs> you know, and th this was just deeply appealing. And I, I, I don't know what, it just opened my mind to looking at everything. And it bothered me when I would go out on a low tide. I didn't know what these creatures were. It just, it ignited uh, sort of my intellect, actually. You know, I wanted to know what everything was. And I found ways to do that. And then uh, sort of the, the eyeball kick moment, the Sartori moment was, I was standing on a rock, I think somewhere on the San Mateo coast. And I was standing on this rock. We used to call it squack rock, me and my fishing partner. <laughs> because squack was like, there's skunk, right? Where you, you don't catch anything. But then there's squack, which is, you like utterly disgrace yourself. Like you fall down, you hurt your knee, you almost drown and you don't catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So we called that squack, you know, so we called it squack rock because it was hard to get up to the top of it. And then we never caught anything. And I was standing on squack rock with my empty bucket. And here comes this little middle-aged guy and he's got a, an, um, a beat up old wetsuit and a bucket and a sack. <laughs> and he pulls the sack out of the bucket and it's like 20 pounds of fish. And I was just astonished. I was like, what, what is this? I've been standing here all day long. I got one perch that I don't even want to eat. And um, I went down and I asked him if I could look in his bucket. You know, it's a kind of, kind of like a, a, a taboo, right? You don't do that. Oddly, I ended up doing that for a living, but um, that's later. But anyway, so I asked this guy what was in the bucket and then I looked in it. And it had a cabazon and there was rockfish and there were these long, elongated, you know, things that look like eels. And I was just blown away. And then he proceeded to show me how to do it. He had a bamboo stick with a wire hanger on the end and a hook. And it, what was so utterly mind blowing to me was that I'm standing on this rock and he's fishing under the rock in about three inches of water. And he's got like a bag full of delicious, you know, protein out of the ocean. And I'm there all day long with one, you know, striped perch that I, like I said before, that I don't even want to eat. <laughs> you know, like, so um, that's kind of how it happened. Man. Interesting. I, I, you see, to this day, I've never been poke pulling. Oh, dude, you haven't lived. <laughs> I don't know. Forget, hey, dude, forget about your Dorado and your, and your swordfish, man. I might dispute that. Uh, that, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It doesn't mean I, I, I still, I still want to go. But it's oh, like, you call yourself an outdoorsman? Jeez, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> um anyway yeah there's something <laughs> it was really funny too because the transition for my my fishing partner john at that time um, he was like a hardcore fly fisherman and then he saw me with like basically pulling fish out from under a rock with a, <laughs> with a like a pool cue basically right it's like <laughs> the, it's like the opposite of fly fishing and then we sort of parted you know that we didn't really fish much after that he just couldn't stop he would go poke pulling with me and he was just couldn't stop laughing it's like <laughs> he just found it completely ridiculous but then you know i was in it for the meat man yeah i mean i've always got a bit in it in fact uh, one of the recent episode of this podcast i spent an hour and a half busting catch and release myths with a biologist yeah i listened to uh the thing you did with milton love and he was talking about the survival of the descender pins, yes. you know like yeah 
I'm glad he did that. I didn't realize it was such a high percentage of survival. But, you know, I'll tell you something, man. I did this project. There's been some funding for a study to see if monkey face eels can be raised in captivity, like aquaculture, Hmm. because um, the potential there is high because they eat a diet almost completely of seaweed. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, when you cut open the stomach, well, you try not to cut open the stomach on a monkey face seal, but when if you want to, you know, gut them and then pull the stomach out and then cut it up and look inside, it's always seaweed. Huh. It, like I've never found a living organism in the stomach of a monkey face seal, which is weird, right? Because they're biting on a piece of squid. Well, everybody likes squid. Yeah, and you know, it's like the um your overweight friend, the vegan, who's sneaking out at night and going to Wendy's. He's <laughs> fucking tired of eating lettuce. So get the ba- yeah, get the baconator. <laughs> Yeah, right. So it's like all of a sudden they've been eating, uh, you know, red algae for their entire life. And they see a little piece of squid come drifting down into their face. They're like, oh, my God, give me that. Um, Poor decision. (laughs) Well, here's the reason I pointed this out was I I talked to the guy. This guy reached out to me and he was he needed to gather eels, monkey face eels for this project, this aquaculture project. It's uh, based out of the Moss Beach Marine Lab. And of course, he Googled monkey face. You know, I, I think I come up before the freaking fish at this point. <laughs> and my name came up and then he called me. And then, so I took him out to a spot where there are just so many of them, you know, there's millions. So we went to the spot and I caught like, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60. Good for, Lord. For, yeah. Over the, over like a month or two. And, um, he took all of these and they brought them back. And many of these fish were gut hooked or hooked deep in the mouth or had blood coming out of the gills. And we were like, uh, man, is this thing just going to, you know, does he have a better chance if I just drop him back? You know, maybe he'll survive. And um, he took them all. And honestly, I think like 20 or 30% of them had problematic hooking, you know, like where you would wonder if they would survive. And he took them down and I think he lost two. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. They're still there in the tank and in his Marine lab. So it's hardy. It's a hardy animal. And if you ever tried to kill one, you would understand that. Uh, it's like American eels. I mean, the only way that I know to kill an American eel, other than like thermonuclear explosion, is to bury it in salt. Well, you could also bury it in ice. I mean, you could, but I mean, the salt trick I learned from an old guy on the Rappahannock River, because A, it kills them, and B, it removes all their slime. Ooh. Yeah, they're slimy. Uh, yeah. That's nasty. It's not rockets. They're like, make a bat ray look smooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But not as bad as a hagfish. Oh, my God. Yeah, nothing in nothing in the planet is as bad as a hagfish. A hagfish is snot that takes the form of a fish. You know, I know a, a commercial guy, I think he's out of Morro Bay, he does that. And he's trying to change the name. You know, he's trying to, to give it a new market name to make it sexier. So he calls them shagfish. Shagfish. <laughs> so the Where, people, where's where's the market for hagfish? Is it all Asia? It's all Korea. Huh. It's all it's all Korea, man. And then I also noticed that. In Korea, there's a delicacy. I mean, I think it translates as penis fish. You know about oh, this? Is this the fat innkeeper? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, read, I just read that part in your book last night and because I was just flipping through it. By the way, if you guys aren't familiar with this book, you don't even have to live in California to buy this book because most of the creatures live elsewhere. If you guys have listened to my Milton Love podcast, which was the, what kicked off this season, Basically, Kirk channels Milton Love in this book in terms of being A, informative, and B, hilarious, and C, irreverent. So this is a 
a kind of a seaside fishing and foraging book that you literally can't put down. I picked it up last night and I was just flipping through it. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot he wrote about fat innkeepers, which are this gigantic worm that looks like a living dildo. That, <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. Lives in the sand and it's what you don't want to dig up when you're digging for clams. And well, I, some people do. Some oh, people, God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do, man. And, uh, like you'll see it, you know, if you walk through the mud flats on a big minus tide and you'll see people with their bucket full of horse snacks and there's a couple of moon snails in there, a couple of fat innkeeper worms. That's, uh, no, that's, that's what they do. Yeah. Oh, they're so gross. Hardcore. Yeah, man. The videos I've seen of, there's a really funny one of some like college girls in Korea and they're eating it as a challenge kind of thing. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's basically raw, man. I mean, it, yeah. I, and they're just like, Oh, and even them, they're like, oh my God, this is crazy. So, well, it's funny. I also flipped over to your sand flea entry. And so sand fleas are also called mole crabs. And so I just, I'm actually going to post on Instagram very soon. The, the, I have a great video of us digging sand fleas in Destin, Florida to fish for Pompano. And then when you release them, they all go like run, 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 run on the beach to rebury themselves. Kids love playing with those. Oh my God. They're super fun. And they're, they're like the size of one digit of your thumb and they run around and they make great bait. And I would be lying if I didn't say that we were like, Hey, I wonder if you can eat these guys. There's basically crabs. And thank you so much for having an entry on what it is like to eat a mole crab so that I (laughs) never have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like eating little helmets, helmets. It's like, and yeah, I, but there are people there. Are, I see people out there doing it and they're like, oh, I love it. You know, I, so, you know, one man's uh, garbage is another man's uh, four star dinner. I don't know. Um, By the way, um, your death hammer, your, your, <laughs> does death hammer still live? No, but I got to tell you, dude, sometimes when I'm out. Um, I thought death hammer was supposed to live for 4,000 years. Well, I'm sure death hammer lives. It just does not live in my possession. Death hammer. Maryland Death Hammer has long been retired, man. I, I sold it to the scrap metal yard. Did you really? <laughs> I did. <laughs> so for, like, if where you else do you it? bring it? Where else do you bring something like that? Dude, it weighed like, I got, it must have weighed 75 pounds. Man. No way. Like, no, it was, it was way too heavy. <laughs> I, <laughs> and so it was for, funny. For, so let's stop for a second. So Death Hammer is in this, it's in your book. So you need a stiff kind of perforated metal rake thing to catch these sand fleas. Which, not really, not really, man. Well, I mean, it, this is, it's, you can buy it in any tackle store in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Okay. And it's made of aluminum and it's really good. And it works like, you know, you catch as many as you want on every rake uh-huh. and it's, they perfected it. But apparently Kirk didn't realize that this thing actually existed when he was getting ready to catch sand fleas to use his bait to catch other fish. And so like, apparently everybody out here in California is using these chicken shit little nets that didn't work. So he's like, no, I need something bigger, stronger, and tougher to catch these sand fleas. So you created a 75-pound cast iron Nordic death metal rake for sand fleas. Yeah, yeah. I remember because at that time I was working at a metal shop that was run by my friend Jerry, who's an avid perch fisherman now. But um, Jerry's like a hardcore metal smith, blacksmith, uh, welder and everything. And he was looking at me. He was like, are you crazy? You're going to kill yourself with this thing because <laughs> he helped me make it. I was like, no, no, it's the perfect design. And then 
I realized, yeah, that is like totally stupid. Then I got out there and it was just, oh man, it's back breaking. You kill me now. <laughs> and the irony is, you know, you can get a little aluminum handled. Just go to Gus's Discount Tackle out on Balboa. And they have these, uh, you know, sort of web mesh nets, a light aluminum, easy to carry. You just dip it down, you pull out some sand crabs and you're good. <laughs> so but, let's go. I want to talk about perch before we move on because surf perch have been something of my white whale in the sense that I've caught plenty of them and I've caught maybe, I don't know maybe four or five different species and I hate them. They're just not good. <laughs> so the only way I've ever figured out how to cook them, well, there's two, one fish cakes or the other is to crispy fry the whole damn fish so much that everything is just crispy because it, the texture of the meat is so soft. It's almost like eating mashed potatoes in fish form. Yes. But you left out the obvious. Have you tried ceviche? Not with perch because aren't they parasitized? Well, shit, everything's parasitized. Not you know, everything, but well, I, listen, man. I I sell seafood for a living. I see a lot of parasites, and I'll tell you that when I do perch ceviche, I fillet them, and you know it's a terrible yield. I mean, it's a wasteful way to do it. Yeah, but you know, if you're looking for a, that's what I do. I fillet them and then I just candle them. If there's anything in it, I'm going to see it. Yeah, that's true. Because it's a thin little fillet, and then man, I, it's really good ceviche. I, okay, um, because, I'm still not going to target them. <laughs> I don't know, man. Listen, I feel you. I feel you because I love catching them. I love you fishing too. for them. And I even love going in the bay, the sort of structure perches mm -hmm. that I call them. Like, like rubber the lips and stuff. Rubber lips and pogies or uh, black perch and pile perch and, and white perch and all those. They're so much fun on light tackle. And they're good starter fish for kids too. But yeah, yeah what do you do? What do you fish do with cakes. them? Fish cakes or ceviche. Hey, <laughs> there it is. There it is. I think you should try it though. I think you should do the ceviche once. Just handle your fillets. Okay. Because it's I've all heard. like the little anisakis worms, right? Yeah. So for people who don't know, candling means just taking a fillet and putting a flashlight or a, some sort of light. I have a, a little um, tracing table. Yeah, it's funny. I've got one too, a light box. Yeah. Yeah, you got one. Yeah. So I just put the fillets on that. I put a plastic baggie so I'm not stinking out the thing that my kids like to draw on. Oh, come um, on. They, <laughs> I mean, they're your kids. They should be yeah, fine right. with it. <laughs> they should be fishing. You'd be surprised with that, man. <laughs> you know, but uh, in any case, yeah, look, I love catching perch. I'll even travel. I'll even travel. I'll drive. I'll drive to Point Reyes, man, and fish for red tails. I love catching them. But uh, again, it, it kind of brings me back to the old days when, when I was a kid and I would catch all these cool things and they had to throw them back, you know, <laughs> kind to, of. catch and release. And, uh, yeah. anyway, so as a fellow East coast guy, mm -hmm. describe for me your, what it was like when you first dug gaper clams, <laughs> 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 I was just mesmerized. Well, you know, I had already embraced the eel at that point. So I was seeing some pretty strange creatures. I mean, I would catch all kinds of weird shit, man. When I was poke calling, I caught a brown Irish Lord. Oh my God. <laughs> It's basically if a whole bunch of worms got together and formed the shape of a fish, <laughs> that is an Irish lord. Oh, I don't know about yeah, yeah. There's quite a few kingfish, white croakers. You ever eat those? Uh, not in the Pacific. I've eaten croakers and fish that are very similar to it in the Gulf. Mm. Well, croakers are outside of San Francisco Bay. If you go, there's some guys that catch them out of Half Moon Bay, 
And those are fine. But for some reason, when they get into the bay, they just get like, oh my God, it's really, it's creepy. It can't be as bad as a jack's melt. Oh man. I've literally never, ever, ever caught a jack's melt that wasn't full of worms. And I've caught Well, but did you see, but do you see the, the worms in the meat or in the, just in the guts? Both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Grim dude. Just super grim, like grim. It's grim. (laughs) But you know, you think about that. That's like maybe the most popularly caught fish in San Francisco Bay. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, you just go to any pier, all the downtown piers just filled with people filling buckets of Jack's Melt, man, you know, and oh. I know those people. <laughs> I mean, you look at the community. They're all skinny for some like, reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, they are. It's funny you should say that. I don't think I've ever seen a fat Jack's Melt fisherman. <laughs> It's a weight loss. I got to think about that. Um, yeah. So they are full of worms, full of worms. I mean, I, with a kingfish, the meat, the flesh of a kingfish, it's a croaker, man. It's like a miniature white sea bass. So the flesh of the kingfish, the white croaker, I think it's good enough to, you know, get your tweezers out and you know, pull out some worms and cook your kingfish. But a jack smelt, I mean, I, there's nothing in that meat that really... I think warrants putting a mouthful of worms into your body. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just like a mackerel, only with 15 times as many worms. Oh, dude. And they're so hard to fucking process, man. You know, like you got to have those thick scales and you got to, you got to scale them. And then I, I, yeah, it's not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wish, I wish it wasn't that way. Me too, because they're easy to catch and they're fun. And the problem there is that everyone thinks the smelt Right, because they're called smelt, even though they're not a smelt. Right, they're a silver side. They're closer to a flying fish than they are to an actual smelt. But because local people, local you know, boss mongers at the wharf, everybody, it's a joke fish, right? Because it's so full of worms that anything called a smelt, they immediately think is a jack smelt. They think of jack smelt. That's the common thing. But um, the true smelts, it's night and day, man. Yeah, I want to get into them in a second, but let's go back to the gaper clams. Yeah, gaper clam. Okay. I learned about that by watching people. I just saw people doing it because I was going out on low tide, sometimes off the jetty. And uh, I would just see people with these buckets and what the hell are you doing? And then I'd stand there and it was like, no way, (laughs) no way. And uh, I started doing it. And I don't know. It's an interesting thing because I was horrified to learn that most of the people doing that, even in what you might think of as a dirty harbor, uh, they're taking them home and pretty much eating them raw. You know, they blanch them a little bit, but it's, you know, raw, like this giant, horrible, phallus looking elephant trunk thing, (laughs) you know, like, and then then the thing that you're actually eating is that, you know, it's that horrible looking neck. That's that's most, that's 90% of the meat. But the thing is I have come around, man. I have come around. I just blanch them and eat them now. No, I used to make a big deal of doing horse neck chowder. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, my wife likes uh, Manhattan tomato-based chowder. She doesn't like the milk kind of. Not actually a chowder, but a nice soup. Yeah. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm talking to the wrong guy here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I've like the last few years when I do go, um, I invariably just do the old Blanche. You know, I think it's 38 seconds or something. Pull it out and ready to go, man. Yeah. I still pretty much do chowder. Um, The other thing I do is in Baja, they make chorizo out of ground abalone and snails and it's really amazing. And so you can use the feet, you know, the foot muscle and then the siphons of these big clams to do the same thing. 
Mm. And it tastes pretty much the same. There's a couple of cool dishes you can do with them. But I think the thing that struck me the most is, so I grew up digging clams in the East. So quahogs, right? Yeah. So quahogs and steamers and surf clams. And, and, you know, you basically, the way you do it is you kind of like walk out in your shorts and, you know, and then you walk into a clam bed and then you kind of do the twist, right? And your feet dig into the sand and your toes feel a quahog. And then you pick it up with your toes like a monkey and see if it fits through the ring. And if it doesn't fit through the ring, you keep it. And, you know, rinse, repeat, and it's fun. You can do it with kids and it's just a really lovely way to spend a few hours. That is entirely not what West Coast climbing (laughs) is. It's it's so intense. It's so filthy. It's like work and it hurts. Yeah. And And you're getting into the deep sort of congealed, you know, fermented duck shit down there. You know, like, you know, like (laughs) as you go deeper and deeper it's just it just gets like that really sort of deep black oozy kind of muck you know and, and you then you, embrace in, it. you invariably slice open one of your fingers which gets infected yeah. in 12 seconds 12 seconds yep yep <laughs> oh yeah and then oh, you, yeah. you pick these clams that like basically if you're digging so gooey ducks is what everybody knows but there's two other well really three other species of similar gooey duck like clams there are two horse necks which are like Natali, mic- Natali and Capax. Yes, Natali and Capax. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're basically small gooey ducks. And then there's a hard shell one called a Washington or a butter clam. Yeah, and those are very high in demoic, as I understand it. Those, oh yeah, they're great uh, clams. They have the highest risk of amnesiac and paralytic shellfish poisoning. Well, you know, I like the amnesiac poisoning because oh, you, you, get to, you get to meet new <laughs> people every day. <laughs> yeah, wipes your hard drive clean. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, side note, if you're going to go clamming anywhere in the United States or Canada or wherever you're listening to this podcast from, there will be a a hotline or a website that will give you a health advisory over whether or not the body of water or the cove or the place that you want to dig clams is actually safe to dig clams. Now, that falls apart in places like Alaska, where there are very few places that are monitored. But in every coastal US state, there will be a hotline with like, hey, I want to go clamming in you know, this beach in South Carolina. There'll be a phone number or a website that you can check so that you don't dig clams that are going to make you sick. So that's a side note for everybody out there listening. Call 1-800-553-4133. What is it? Account- I, I totally forget. I, I can't 800-553-4133. <laughs> is that really actually the California number? Yes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and it's the uh, Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. And I used to collect samples for them. And I found this was really, really useful because I was nervous. I don't want to have my precious hard drive cleaned out for me. I really don't, man. I don't need that. It's hard enough for me just to remember people's names. (laughs) But the thing is that um, what I would do is I'd go and I'd collect a sample. And then I'd go back to the exact area the next day because they would give you the results like immediately. It's incredible, man. And then I would go back and I'd go, oh, I've already basically been the biologist for this stretch of shoreline, like the biologists that they have in all the different uh, mussel farms, uh, shellfish farms on the California coast, oysters. Well, that's a good one. So I would go collect, send my sample in, find out the next day the sample was clean, and then go back to the same spot and pick clams. There you go. I had this one horrible experience. So back in 2015, I did a Kickstarter for my venison cookbook. And one of the surprises or premiums that if you donated a certain amount to help me publish the book was I would take you out gathering something. And the person who chipped in for that 
lived in Sonoma and wanted to go clamming. So I'm like, sure, let's go. And so we went clamming. I checked the hotline. So we're digging clams and we had a pretty good day, but there were a couple of like dead clams that were like, we would dig them up and they would, you know, if you guys have never smelt a dead clam, um, yeah. it smells like really bad decisions in college. It's just horrible. <laughs> it's just, it's vile. It's, it's not good. And, yeah. and so there were a couple, two, three that we picked I'm like, huh, that's weird. And we said goodbye. And, and I said, you know what, you know, just check the hotline one more time before you cook them. So I did the same. Sure enough, that beach was closed that morning. So they had closed that beach while we were digging. And so we had to throw all our clams away. And it was really pretty depressing. But, but of course, you uh, know, better that than get sick. Sorry, were those horse necks? There were horse necks primarily. And then we had a few little necks as well. Oh, I see. I've read about this. Yeah, if they close that specific beach, then yeah, that's the deal. That's what you got to do. But I've heard that the incidences of paralytic shellfish poisoning and amnesiac shellfish poisoning are greater in bivalves that are in direct association with the open coast. Hmm. Listen, I don't want to give out wrong information, but I I spoke to someone along the road that said that they had seen very few incidences of this from gaper clams. Now, there's always a chance. Right. Um, but like they're much more nervous about razors and mussels from the open coast. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. Are you ready for summer? eFish delivers only in-season, never frozen, wild American cod seafood right to your doorstep. How do they do that? eFish doesn't have a warehouse full of fish. Instead, their harvester direct seafood ships your order directly to you from the source. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place your order. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they've put harvesters and our oceans first. What does that mean? Small boat operations, hook and line caught fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. At eFish, they want you to see food confidently. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get $15 off your first order. That coupon code is HuntGatherTalk. Once again, that's e-fish.com. For everyone out there listening, it is my guess, it's my knowledge or whatever it is, it's my understanding, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that pretty much everywhere from Baja to the British Columbian coast, mussels are no good in the summer because unlike every other shellfish, they're definitely going to have, or almost definitely going to have some sort of nasty in them from about May or June till the weather gets cool again. And that quarantine has existed all the way back to the native groups who obviously knew it. And they would set sentries near muscle grounds so that if some bunch of native guys from the inlands were like, yeah, well, let's go to the coast and get some mussels. And the guys on the coast would be like, yeah, you don't want to do that right now. You'll, you'll get sick. And this is unique to the Pacific because you can gather mussels all year round. I mean, obviously there could be an individual closure in one spot or another, but it's not a, every year it's not terrible to gather mussels in the, in the warmer months. No, it is. No, say, no, no, no. Say no, New no. England. It's actually a closure from May 1st to October 31st. In the Pacific, yes. Yes, okay. In, in the Pacific, it's always close from April 1st to like Halloween-ish. More yeah, or less. yeah, yeah. But that's not true in places like New England or the Mid-Atlantic states. Right, interesting. 
I guess they're, they're trying to weed out the population or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody kind of knows clams and mussels and oysters and to some extent scallops and crabs and things like that. What really got me thinking was when I was a teenager, Yule Gibbons' book, Stalking the Blue-Eyed Scallop, which is second most famous book after Stalking the Wild Asparagus. And Stalking the Blue-Eyed Scallop is, in my opinion, the uber seaside foraging book in the sense that it covers a much broader area than your book. I love your book, but your book may not be as useful for someone living in the Gulf of Mexico. Sure. They open your eyes to like, whoa, you can eat that? Whoa, that's actually really good. And there's an enormous number of like creatures <laughs> that are way better than you might think. I think the first one that I became aware of was when I was a, a little kid, you know, probably eight or nine years old, were periwinkles on uh-huh. the East Coast. Uh-huh. And the, the equivalent on the West Coast are turban snails. Right. And so I, to this day, I still like periwinkles. And what was your, you're like, wow, this is a weird ass creature that is really absolutely worth my while to go out of my way to go get. Okay. Well, if I can expound a little on that, um, or expand is what I mean. Yeah, so I grew up thinking that like a little fish was something that um, belonged on a hook on the bottom of the Hudson River or in the ocean for the purposes of enticing a larger fish to swallow it. That, you know, I was, small fish are bait. And that changed. That changed in California because I just sort of fell in love with this variety of small fish that was here. And um I don't know how weird these are. Like everything that's in my book, I tried it once. <laughs> but but like I cooked a freaking innkeeper worm, dude. And oh. but I can't speak for that. I can't say that that is something that uh, you know. And then there were things I did when I got here that I didn't realize were illegal, like gooseneck barnacles. Yeah, yeah. I learned that one. I fortunately I checked the regs before I went out because I found a really good spot for them. And then like I wonder and sure enough they're not legal in california they are in oregon and washington though yeah but as far as weird things you know monkey face seal is that you know that's something but you'll notice i don't i don't eat a lot of monkey face seals anymore man you know almost never frankly you know if i get one and it swallows the hook yeah i tend to go out and we do that with my kids they love catching them but they're like (laughs) they're rebelling against their old man and uh, they won't let me kill anything when we go fishing together (laughs) Um, my son said, if we take it out of the water, it won't see its mommy and daddy again. I said, you know, there's a high likelihood that if it sees its mommy or daddy, they're going to eat it. <laughs> you know, like that, it might not want to see its mommy and daddy. But in any case, I'm trying to, you know, I'm sort of having a, I'm trying to handle that question. Weird things that I. Well, suddenly- you kind of intimated to it. So let's just get right into it. Let's talk about, you're actually quite well known for your not only ability to catch, but your evangelization of our Bay Area herring and surf smelt and night smelt. And yeah, we have all of the stars of the small fish contingent. You know, I do these walking tours. I've been doing them for 15 years, right? I take people out and I kind of teach them about what's in the Bay and what they can catch and what the rules are. And I try to instill in them some ethics about the being stewards and all. You'd be surprised, man. I will have all these people come out to do a tour and I'll say, can you guys name three species of sort of small schooling fish? And no one ever knows that we have herring. There might be one person out of 20, which is so sad. Well, kind of, I mean, you you associate herring with cold places. Right. But right. Cold water and 
who has colder water than us? You know, we have cold ass water. We do. We do. And um, the thing that's so interesting to me about it is like the herring come right up to the shoreline. I mean, they basically jump into your mouth. <laughs> like, okay, so you'd have to lie in the water. and keep, well, That wouldn't work. But in any case, they're accessible to people th- living in the city. I think I mean, the biggest problem I've always had with herring is that they're zephyrs. They're like, oh my God, they're here. Let's get them. And then yeah. they're gone. So I live minimum, minimum 90 minutes from the San Francisco Bay and really two hours plus. And I remember you and I went round and round and round a bunch of times where it's like, you know, they're here, get your car. And I'm like, I'm doing something. And yeah, and it's just like, it's one of these things where I actually caught enough, you know, as many as I wanted once using a Sabiki rig tooling around in the Bay in like February. And that was fun. That was a lot of fun. It's basically as many as you want. And you catch them on a sabiki. I mean, you're throwing cast nets and you're catching like a limit in two throws. Yeah, well, I mean, that happens sometimes. And I don't even like that because I have so much fun throwing the net. I want it to last. So I use a little tiny net, which can take maybe five pounds. And um, yeah, so I want it to last. So I take my time and I've learned my days of filling up a bucket of herring and then taking that home and processing it for the next nine hours. I just I don't have time for that anymore, man. And I don't know if the people that I'm making the pickled herring for are appreciating everything that went into it. So I take five pounds home, maybe yeah. six, maybe six or seven. And that's all I need. You know, I give one to the Danish mother-in-law and I um, keep the rest in my refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. It's like, you know, you think about like for us, it's shad, you know, the, mm-hmm. we have here in Sacramento, the second largest shad run in the world. And if you wanted to, you could catch 25 shad a day but why would you want to? Why? <laughs> I'm sure that you've got tons of stuff on this that I need to look at, but can you fillet a shad? Yes, I can fillet a shad. Wow, dude. It's an East Coast skill that does not, to my knowledge, exist in the West Coast. No. Do you have it, the curved knife? Uh, yeah, it's a very, very skinny curved fillet knife. And even then I mess up the first two every year because it takes me a good six, seven minutes to do one. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I can fillet a regular fish in seconds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have the skills. So if I do keep them, I blender them and make fish balls. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can smoke them and flake the meat out. Uh, you could poach them and flake the meat out, or you can, I do this other thing called the, it's funny. It's this great example of convergent evolution where both the Japanese and the guys who live in the Ozarks came up with the exact same technique for bony fish, which is to huh. say, you fillet this fish out and it could be a, you know, a shad or a, a sucker or something like that. And you know that the fillet has a lot of bones in it. So you take a very sharp knife and you make lots and lots and lots of slices to, but not through the skin that are perpendicular to where the backbone was. And what that does is as you draw that knife through, you'll hear and snapping all those little bones. And when you then dust that in cornmeal, if you're in the Ozarks or tempura, if you're in Japan, and then fry it, two things happen. One, the skin retracts and the piece of fish opens up like a peony flower. And two, the exposure to the hot oil softens those bones to the point where you can't tell that they're even there. Wow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think about the smelt I eat, the night smelt. We just fry them and eat them whole, bones and all. Yeah, because they're small. Yeah, they'll die. So it occurs to me that the night smelts are smelt in grunions, which are the Southern California. (laughs) Um, Grunions. Grunions are silver side. Yeah, but they're still good. They're good. But you got to scale them. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. 
But these are all things that are much more predictable than the herring run. The herring run is like, there's a time and it's usually yeah. like January, February, but it's like, oh my God, they're there. And then if you're not there, too bad. Exactly. Whereas the smelty things, they tend to hit the beaches at very particular phases of the moon in the exactly. warmer months. Yeah. Yeah. So you can kind of you can kind of plan a little bit better with smelt. Um, you sure can. You absolutely can. Well, I would say with night smelt you can, but with surf smelt, no. Ah. In our area, no. Maybe up in in the Eureka Crescent City area, yes. But down in the San Francisco Bay area, you know, the numbers on surf smelts have just gone down so drastically. I mean, they were always kind of iffy about when they would. You could never really predict when they would run. Mm. I think what a lot of people would do is kind of target them on certain tides around noon. And so I thought when I first started doing that, that, oh, they run around noon. (laughs) You know, that's what they want on a certain tide. But what I found was the reason that people are doing that around noon is because the sun is directly overhead. And this is a sight casting. Ah, okay. And so with the sun directly overhead, you can really see them well. And if that happens to coincide with a certain tidal thing, arrangement, then that's what you want. But it's not that they're like waiting for noon. (laughs) Far from it, in fact, because the predators that prey on them, namely Caspian terns and pelicans, or mainly Caspian terns, they also like looking down on them with the sun directly. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) So so describe for people who may not know, you decided I'm going to go catch some smelt. And Uh it's a little different from you the way you do it in the Great Lakes. Oh, yeah. A lot different. Um, Use casting nets here for day fish, for uh, surf smelt. In the last eight years, I think there's been one very mini spawn, which was last year. And I felt guilty, frankly. I think I took maybe eight pounds. It's a 25-pound limit. And I don't even think those fish were spawning. I think they were just kind of checking out the waves. And they, they kind of came up a little bit into the trough. And I happened to have my net, and I got them. But, um, you what know, about night smelt? Night smelt's been really good this year. So yeah. how do you do the same thing, though? You come out no, at night? No, 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 okay. no. Different technology. I think um, up north where the surf smelt numbers are higher, the density is higher, population's better. You know, the Bay Area would be sort of the southern edge of this species limit anyway. So whenever you're at the northern or southern edge of a species limit, the numbers are not going to be what they are right in the epicenter, right? Right. So in the case of um, surf smelt, you're sort of target shooting. You've got your throw net. And you're standing and you're looking in the waves. You're looking for certain sand grains and certain tides. And then you see them and you throw your net. And then um, night smelt, it's kind of dangerous to be throwing your net around at night, which I illustrate in the book, because you can't really see where it's going to land and it gets you off balance. So what people use traditionally, and I think this goes back to Native American days, is the A-frame dip net. And the A-frame dip net is a specific technology. I think it's unique to California because I haven't seen anybody doing this in Oregon. And I've never heard of anybody doing it in Washington or further up the coast. You know, it's an A-frame net with a bar across the middle with a long sort of bag attached to the frame. And then you stand in the surf and when the wave comes in, you sort of dip it down. You kind of change the angle so that the, the surf can rush through the net. And then you lift it up. It's almost like panning for gold. And then you lift it up, you shake out all the sand and you'll look down and you'll see these little beautiful silvery, golden, silvery things shimmering in the net. And then you lean it back, they go down into the bag and they keep going. Hmm. And it's again, very much you know, it's like, like we used A-frame yeah. uh, dip nets for herring in Virginia back in the 90s. Really? Mm-hmm. Because that we so like the triangle those, ones because 
if you have a triangle net, because you're standing in a river and you can put the point of a triangle in between two rocks and then the, the herring will swim through. Interesting. Okay, so this is different. You're fishing with the wide part of the triangle. The reason that it works is because of the momentum of the waves. The fish are swimming in up the surf zone and uh, they're in the swash, right? So they're, they're coming up and you're basically scooping them as they come up the beach to spawn. Hmm. And this is different than the grunion. You're actually not allowed to use a net for grunion. Right. You have to grab them. And it's so much fun. If you can actually get the kids to go out at two o'clock in the morning, it's just, it's so much fun. And, and you know, if, there are actually a couple of places in the Bay Area where you can get grunion. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I want that going out. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the Bay Area, no one knows. Big, the Bay Area is a big place. So Yeah, it's a big place. So, Somewhere yeah. between Monterey and uh, Mendocino, you can get grunion. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Filson. Filson Sporting Goods has for 125 years, their uncompromising commitment to quality has defined their authenticity. They have built trust within the community to become more than just a clothing brand. They are stewards of the American outdoor tradition. I have worn their gear for more than 25 years. I've worn it fishing, hunting, and even in just regular foul weather. I am almost always wearing a Filson lightweight rain jacket when uh, I'm fishing in rainy weather because it is at the same time light and waterproof. I love it to death and you should check it out too. Now back to the show. It was interesting because um, I knew this biologist who was studying grunion. The way that they found out that grunion had sort of returned after, I think it was like an 80-year hiatus. Like they had just disappeared from the Northern California coast. And the way they found this out was that somebody was doing a study on some dead uh, cormorants that had washed up in the bay in Alameda. And they opened the, you know, the gut contents of the cormorant. It was full of, uh, you know, grunion. And then they had this group called the Grunion Breeders, which I volunteered for. And I went out on the beach inside San Francisco Bay in the middle of the urban estuary that we love. And I stood there on a beach with this biologist. I was like, this is a snipe hunt you took me on here, man. There are no grunion here. Are you kidding me? She's like, just wait, just wait. And we stood there and um, boom, all of a sudden, like down at the edge of this very well-known San Francisco beach inside the bay. Crazy. Uh, I saw these little sparkly things. I couldn't believe it. And then there they were, sex on the beach, dude, rolling around in their frothy grunion slime. Yeah, doing the and, big wiggly uh, thing. Yeah, and we just counted them. We weren't, you know, I, she didn't know how deeply I wanted to scarf them. <laughs> um, but we just, you know, we kind of counted what we saw. And it was uh, astonishing. And then there are other places where uh, you can actually harvest them. Well, probably if you go down by Pacifica or farther south on the coast, they'd probably be much more regular, I would think. Yeah, I'm not going there. Well, I mean, it's a long ways between. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm not going there with the discussion of where one might look. There's two locations. In the whole Bay Area. Where you- oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about actual locations. I'm taking, like, in general, though, they like open beaches, don't they? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's because that's where you get them in Los Angeles. Los Angeles yeah. is really the kind of the home of the Grunion. And it's fascinating yeah. because LA, like, you can't think of too many places in the United States and maybe the world that are as divorced from nature as Los Angeles. And yet there's this one yeah. last cultural wild food tradition in LA, and that's the Grunions. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Super cool. So I want to, I, really I kind of want to go into this, like before I let you go, I want to talk before I let you go about kind of why you don't want to talk about some of the details of this stuff. Um, how do we 
help people, yeah. you know, be a skilled at doing this kind of stuff and be avoiding the tragedy of the commons where, you know, I don't do foraging walks anymore because, you know, you take 15 people out and you show them kind of what it is. And 14 of them are great humans and one person burns your spot. And I've seen oh. that happen multiple times and, and you and I have seen it happen to a clam spot. And yeah. so how do we navigate that? With a lot of care and, you know, yeah, it's a tough question. You know, I wrote a book about this stuff. I tried really hard in the book to impress upon people, to not take it for granted and to follow the rules. I mean, I think that's the first thing. The, yeah, the rule, but, I, but I would argue this, like, so here's, a, let me give you an example of, yeah, following the rules is a nice start, but I went to a Western Little Neck beach that I knew was a very good producing area. So I'm there one day and I'm not finding any little necks. Just not. I'm finding is this, is this um is this the one where we went? No, it's not. It's a different beach. And okay. I'm just finding spat, you know, little tiny ones. And I'm just like, God, like, where do they all go? And a warden walked up to me and said, Hey, you probably won't find any. And I'm like, well, what happened? It's like, well, a couple of extended families came out, like I guess a month before. Every single one of them had a license and every single one of them got their 50 clams. And so he said oh, there was like Christ. 20 people in these two extended families. Each of them got their 50 clams and then they and then they left. So that was within the law. Like he couldn't do anything about it, but they nuked that place. And that was in about 2009. And I went back in 2019 and it still had not recovered. Yeah. So somebody found that spot. I don't, um, man, let me think about this. What do you do? I stopped doing my tours for two years. I'm firing it up again because I miss doing it and I miss communicating the things I have to say about it. But yeah, I worry about it. And um, I think you just have to maybe screen the people. I don't, what do you do, Hank? I guess you stop. That was your answer. I'm yeah, not going to contribute anymore. But I, I mean, stopped. think about, yeah, but look, somebody can go to your website. I mean, like, there's so many ways that a person can learn about something. And then just go off on their own and do it. Okay. So we're talking about little neck clams. Now somebody knows that there's little neck clams and they're uh, a Google search away from finding all kinds of information about where that clam might possibly live. Okay. So they learn that uh, it's a certain type of sand and they learn that it's uh, what, what kind of like broader habitat they like. Well, if they just keep at it, they're going to find them. And then once they find them, they are going to possibly uh, invite 35 people down to take their limits. So I guess the way I justify this to myself is that when people come out to do my tour, I, I lay it on them. And I know there could be a bad egg in there. You know, like um, I always go to the same rock when I'm talking about poke pole. And I say to people, if I come out here and I find one of you people poke polling this particular rock, then I know that you were the wrong person for me to take out. Because I am showing you the freaking eel that's living in this rock, okay? Well, I did that one day. I came out to my rock, and there was a guy who had been on my tour the day before. And it was a very ugly situation. But I, I mean, I don't know how I can prevent that from happening. I kind of justify it, I guess, by saying, if they get me as their teacher, at least they get the sense of what they might do wrong. At least they get the sense of, sort of my cliche is to be a citizen of the intertidal zone, not a consumer of it. And I'm serious about that. That's why I put it in the book. But, um, you know, I can't guarantee that I'm not going to get some fucking idiot 
that's going to go to my exact hole and poke bowl the freaking eel that I showed him was in that hole the day before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one because somebody could be like, well, why are you shutting the door behind you? Um, you know, you know all this information, but why can't we have a piece of it? And then, you know, it's a legitimate question. And I think the scenario that you described before of the person doing his or her own research on how to find little necks, for example, I think if that's the case, if that somebody's that motivated to figure out the kind of sand or the exact habitat and then do the walking because you're not going to find them immediately, I suspect that that person has earned it and that they've done enough work where they may have developed their own sense of ownership. And this is true. You see this with hunting a lot where I will help you hunt ducks. I'm not going to give you the X. I'm not going to give you the honey hole and nor should you expect it. And so another thing for everybody out there listening to this, I'm going to guess that most people listening to this understand this sort of etiquette, which is to say, if I take you to a hunting, fishing, or gathering spot, it's my spot and you cannot return unless you ask me. And if I say yes, then you go by yourself, possibly with your you know, significant other. You don't tell yeah. other people where that spot is. You don't take other people to that spot because that's, there are literally, and, and both Kirk and I have encountered this, where there are spots where you can nuke the spot in one day. And you have to really understand that to responsibly gather from really anything. Yeah. But again, you're trusting that. I don't think there's any way that you can be completely sure that you don't have an idiot, you know, in the crowd. <laughs> I just, well, that means it's like, a, it's, that's true with a group of people you don't know, but I don't take people I don't know hunting or gathering at all anymore. Like I just right. don't. I then switched to taking people on edible plant walks in places like state parks where it's illegal to gather. And that it didn't even stop it. Like there were places where I sure didn't gather because it's illegal and I don't need to be hunter, angler, poacher, cook. And <laughs> hey, there might be a market for that. Right. And, and then I would go back there, you know, just to walk around. And sure enough, the place had been picked clean. So, yeah, I think there's always going to be people like that. And I think as long as you and I and other people who do this sort of thing, like you said, like in your tours, you're like, look, uh, you can impress upon people how easy it is to nuke a spot. Like I have a spot for Little Necks right now, which is good. It works well. But I only gather from it like maybe, maybe twice a year and usually only once. Do you think you're the only one there? No, but it's been pretty consistent for seven years. Hmm. So maybe I am. I don't know. God, there's so many of those things in the Bay. I wish I felt better about harvesting them there. Well, um, I mean, I'm not in the Bay, of course, but. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know. I'm in the North Coast there. There's, it's just so polluted in, in the areas where they tend to be, you know, I just, it feels weird. <laughs> Although I know old guys that have been eating Manilas and Little Necks out of San Francisco Bay, you know, they're like in their 80s. You see these guys, they're like vigorous men <laughs> in, their, in their 80s. And like, yeah, got guys like, yeah, man, I've been eating these since, oh, 1950. So when I started eating their Little Necks out of San Francisco Bay, I do it every, every month. And um, yeah, right there in the freaking, like the worst industrial landscape you've ever seen. <laughs> they're eating them. And it seemed to work, seemed to work for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is Um, true all over the country. This is not just a California thing. The alternate set of problems is if you live in a place like Alaska or rural British Columbia, where nothing is monitored, 
in which case you understand why there are places in Alaska called, you know, Murder Cove, which get their name because you know, a bunch of Russian traders sailed in there, dropped anchor, was super hungry, decided to go clamming, and every one of them died. And, oh. and yeah, yeah, that's that's a fact. That actually happened. Uh, oh boy. And and so I think the stuff that I want to really relay with people is that it's in a magical world on the seashore. And it's a magical world that can be damaged quite easily. And it's not that you shouldn't go there. And you are a consumer. If you take anything, you're a consumer. But you should go there as an understanding that you, it's stupid to eat your seed corn and just tread lightly. Unless you live in a place like Barron, which is very pretty much nowhere <laughs> on the, on the, on the yeah. coast of the United States. Uh, you have to really just be real careful and make... Digging clams, a thing that you do a few times a year, not every week, because clams are a great example uh, of things that don't really move very much. So you can come back to the same spot until it's gone. Yeah. Although I have to say, man, I'm a little bit blown away by, there's a lot of people who, who clam in my area and they hit the same spot every single low tide, like huge groups of people. Okay. I'm talking like you look out at the flats and there's 60 people out there. Yep, okay? I've seen it. I've seen it. And they've been doing this since I moved down here. And before I moved down here and I, I was coming down here quite regularly, you know, this has been going on for decades. And yet every time I go down there, they're still getting clams. I will point out that the clams are smaller. And there comes a point when you're harvesting something where it gets so small that it's not actually reproducing. You're mm -hmm. killing it before it had a chance to reproduce. And then they will be gone. But as of now, you know, I go down there, these people are still getting their limits. And that's another thing. There's an obsession in California, or maybe everywhere, with this idea that it wasn't a successful day unless you bagged your limit. You know, so like you didn't really have a good rockfish trip unless you took 10 home. Never mind the fact that you're going to have freezer burned rockfish or you're, you're actually giving it away. You're not like eating it yourself. Or you really need 25 pounds of smelt or two buckets full of herring, but I'll see people and it's like, they won't stop until they're at the absolute limit. And yeah, I mean, just, I can I, play devil's advocate with it. As someone who fishes and gathers and forages and hunts quite a bit, I totally get what you're saying because tomorrow's another day, but I fish and hunt and gather with people for whom this is their only day. This is the only day that they're going to dig clams like in the whole year. And so for that case, yeah, they want their 10 clams. Yeah. But that's not what I'm seeing. In my area, in my area, I'm seeing the same people. Yeah. And like every two weeks, you got to take another 10 and then, you know, you have license for everyone in the family and it just becomes, um, you know, it's excessive. A, it's excessive. It's a slaughter fest. And uh, yeah, I'm sort of on the fence on that. But in any case, I think you get my point. I do. Well, it's funny. Like uh, we used to fish mackerel because the, the schools of Atlantic mackerel would, would kind of hit the coast around North Carolina. And the schools would work their way up to New England for they'd spend the summer. And those schools can be measured in miles. So yeah. it's literally all you want. And virtually everybody on the boat with me, virtually everybody, they were only fishing for bait for the rest of the summer. So they would fill just huge burlap sacks full of them. And uh -huh. me, I would do one burlap sack for bait for bluefish and stripers and such. But I would have one cooler with ice and I would bleed them and Ice them, you know, I'd get enough of whatever I think I could eat in a week because mackerel don't really freeze well. Right. And then I'd have these beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous mackerel to eat for the next week. And then I'd have, you know, a bag of bait in the freezer for, and then, I, you know, you go that one time because it, 
they're here and they're gone. Uh-huh. So it's the same reason why people pull a, the arm on a slot machine until they run out of money. Yeah. No, I get it. I, I, you know, we could keep kind of dancing around this, but I just think a lot of these folks, I just wish they weren't doing that on a weekly basis. That's, you know, I get it. You go once a year, take your 10 clamps. You go every two weeks. I mean, come on, man. Um, just, yeah, like how just, much do you need? I mean, just freaking clamps are huge. <laughs> even the little ones, even the little ones, you know, it's like the, the little one is the size of a freaking baseball as far as clams go. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah. Well, where can people uh, find you on this series of tubes we call the internet? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, you know, you can read about what we do with sea forage or seafood. And then there are links there to the classes and the tours I do. I do basically uh, sort of like a basic fishing class in San Francisco. I just kind of stand on the shores of the bay and I, I tell people about the variety of things and we go over the rules and regulations. It, this is a basic thing where it's more for the set of people that don't know how to tie fishing knots and aren't familiar with the local species. So that's one thing I do. And then the other thing I do is this mega low tide tour down in Half Moon Bay where we kind of look in tide pools and talk about clams and ghost shrimp and all of this stuff. And you can find all of that on my, on the tours button. I stopped doing this, you know, for two years and I've decided to fire it up again. And so this conversation has made me wonder if I really want to do that. <laughs> I'll just have, you know, and I'm always sort of, you know, for two years, I just, I felt like the risks of overpopulating the coast with people were greater than the gains of kind of telling them how to do this. But I've changed my mind. I feel like if somebody's reaching out to me, at least it's somebody that I have some control over. I have a chance, you know, so maybe there's that the one asshole that I'm, you know, is going to do the wrong thing no matter what I say. But maybe there's some people who didn't know any better. And maybe there's more of those people and maybe they'll learn something. That's sort of my justification. And I'm going to see. I've scheduled two months of tours. And if at the end of that, I'm not really feeling it, I'm out. I mean, I was out for two years since COVID started. So, And then, I, of course, uh, your book your book is also um, on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. Heyday books. Well, thanks, Kirk. This has been awesome. I will put all of that stuff in the show notes so that people can get in touch with you and buy your book. And I'll put some of the, the <laughs> some links to some of the more horrible creatures that we've talked about so people yeah. can be frightened in their sleep. Yeah. Avoid the brown Irish lord. Oh. Oh. <laughs> but you know, man, there are people who are very passionate about their jack smell. I'll just have you know. And I, I think that should be one of your challenges. You know, like I don't know what you're going to do with it, but. That's I've my eaten jack smelt. I've eaten plenty of them. I just like, I don't do it anymore because like, I just can't, I don't want to like wade through 15 worms in every fillet. Yeah, no, I get it. It's, 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 it's sort of a non-starter, but um, yeah. And at some point I'd like to get you out and we'll, we'll do some night smelt. Absolutely. Um, because it's way more predictable and I think you would enjoy it. It's just, it's so much fun to be out there. And last time it was so cool. We were watching these um, harbor seals, sea lions, you know, I won't go there, but Harbor Seals, I kind of have a little love for, you know, I feel some love for those guys. And um, we, I was out on the beach and um, these Harbor Seals, it was so cool, dude. The mother Harbor Seal was teaching the babies how to get the smell. We were watching it. It was, she, they were following her and she was showing them that they go way up the beach. And so she was behind them and nudging them and they were going up the beach. And then she would turn around on her back and they would turn around on their backs. And they would slide back down, like, you know, like otters kind of go down these 
tracks in the snow that make little slides. Mm-hmm. Well, they were doing they were doing that in the swash, and we were just watching. They were chasing the smell up the beach, and then they'd roll over on their backs and they'd go sliding back down into the trough. It was so beautiful. That's cool. And just things like that, and and it's been good this last year. I have to drive far to get to them, but um, it's worth it to me. Not as far as I'd have to drive. <laughs> no, no, closer to you. All right, man. I will catch you later. And uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. All right, Hank. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, that is our show for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this is the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by eFish and Filson. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. As usual, you can find me on social media at Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. I also run a Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook, which you have to answer some questions to get in. Just say that you listen to the podcast and I will let you in. And the core of what I do is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. That is my website. You can get to it from huntgathercook.com. You can find literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recipes for fish, for game, for wild edible plants, and for mushrooms on Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you listening. And if you get the time. I would really be grateful if you could like this podcast and subscribe to it in whatever format that is best for you. It helps me out. Take it easy and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.